Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. I'd like to welcome you to a continuation of our series on self-empowerment. Today's topic, being a winner. Now we all want to win at something, and the most important thing is to win at the things that are important to us. I'm not talking about the idea that we win at being the top dog, that we're the most aggressive or powerful or ruthless, mean-spirited or manipulative. Mind you, in, the, in a room of just normal, balanced, moral people, the person who is most assertive, aggressive, and dynamic will almost always control the outcome of what goes on in that room. That doesn't mean it'll be done with respect or love. So when we look around us today at many of the people who are very successful, it does mean that they're happy. And it doesn't mean that we respect them in the way that they got their riches. After all, how can we respect someone who caused other people to suffer by how they succeeded? I'm talking about succeeding in a good way. Succeeding when we are doing something really constructive. Now I'm going to give you a series of issues, and these are just issues you can play with them, manipulate them, change them, but they're guideposts. And let's begin. What are we looking for in the way of goals? And I think that we have to have healthy goals. Right at the top of the list, we can go through some simple ones. More quality time to do the things that are important to us. When I was growing up as a baby boomer, everyone I knew had a hobby. And they spent quality time on it. I remember having a train set. I remember my brother had a boat. He, he was making one of his little uh, boat models. And it gave us joy to do that. Today, ask anybody, do you have a hobby? The answer is no. Why? There's no time for it. And well, where are you putting your time? Responsibilities. Well, is it one of your goals to have more responsibilities? If it's not, then don't be successful at having excessive responsibilities. Part of me um, loves the concept of goals and part of me hates the concept of goals. I think goals can become very restricting and obsessive. However, if we're not heading somewhere, what is the momentum? What's the, the motivation to, to go places? I think it's wonderful to sit with yourself on a regular basis and say, this is my dream time. Who would I like to be? How would I like to picture myself in a year, five years? But not to become rigidified with it. To allow yourself to have ideas flowing and maybe even write them down and put them away for a while and then take out that list of things and, and try it on again and see, okay, I wrote this list six months ago, let me see. You might very well be surprised how many of them have come true. I have had that experience time and time again where I, I make myself have the courage to sit down and dream. And then I write down some of the ideas that come from the dream, put them away in a special place, open it up sometime later and lo and behold, there are some of the things that I've actually moved into as my conscious reality in my experience. So certainly to have the potential to dream and to dream wildly and let yourself expand and then you'll find your way with your dreams. You'll find the way to the ones that are meant to materialize in the way that you wish. And within that scope, I think I want to add that we really need to have compassion for when you step back, when you don't manage it. None of us will be able to 100% every day stay on target. So I think key is to allow yourself the human forgiveness when you stray from the path. It doesn't mean that it's all shot, that it's all wasted. You get right back on the path. Maybe you adjust the path. Maybe you say to yourself, that, 
that achievement that I'm aspiring to is a little too great for the time frame I'm setting for myself. So I'm going to say, instead of that, I'm going to reduce it to this step here. And the baby steps are the way to get there. And as you take those steps, you might then discover, you know what? It's veering off this direction a little bit. This, in fact, is a really better path for me. So to be flexible, I think be playful. When I eat, unless it's with some friends, I wouldn't be reading a newspaper. I wouldn't be talking on the cell phone. I would simply be focused upon the food, realizing that there's almost a sacred exchange. My whole body, all 100, and 100 trillion cells, is going to become what I'm eating. So why would I want to eat a Twinkie or a hot dog or a French fry? I don't want to become that. I don't want to become the saturated fats, the trans fats. I don't want to become the excess calories. I don't want to be having my body express itself by the toxins I take in because then I become toxic. Well, that's, that's really self-destructive. That's not going to lead to success. But if I sit there and I put my energy and focus upon, I'm in this moment, the food is here, I'm going to enjoy the food, and I'm also going to appreciate the time and energy and creativity that went into this. It's so important to take charge of our focus and stay in the moment that it could be said to be the crux of our life being in the moment is a lifelong practice. It just isn't something we say, oh, I'm going to be in the moment now. We want to be because the moment is our life. The moment is what's happening now. And usually we're not in the, we, we, we miss our life. We miss the people in front of us. We don't see who's there. We're lost in dreams and thoughts. How is it going to work out? Are they going to be my love of my life? Are they going to fit my fantasies? We don't know what's really happening. We really skid by in a kind of a dream. So waking up to the moment and learning how to plant ourselves in it and live in it is a really crucial life practice for everyone. Living in the moment is awareness of the living, moving being. There are so many opportunities for everyone now to learn about what is the moment-to-moment -moment existence. You can ask questions like, am I breathing from my abdominal cavity? Am I allowing my diaphragm its full stretch? Tuning into just the breath alone. Am I using my nostrils to inhale? How am I exhaling? So you begin a training program that comes from the East originally, but we can do it waiting for a, a bus. We can do it waiting for an elevator where the focus goes immediately inward to your body rhythms. And from that place, the learning begins to expand outward. Now you only have one energy. That's it, one energy. So whatever you choose to use that energy on, that then becomes the dynamic force. So the more things you bring into an energy at any given time, the more pieces of that energy are gonna be taken out and distracted. So hence, the more responsibilities you have, the more multitasking you do, the more, in effect, the more segues, this energy here, that there, that over there, bits and pieces of energy, none of which are done ideally, none of them which are done at our high level of competency and quality. So when we go through a day, we frequently, at the end of the day, we have nothing to show for the day, nothing that's an ooh-ah, nothing that's a re remarkable expression of how good we feel about the day because we've had so many things competing with our energy during the day. The more things compete with your energy, the less focused your energy is. Every single new dynamic causes a recalibration, a refocus of your energy, your intent, and 
than your responsibilities. I had one of the most beautiful homes in America on Lake Hapakong in New Jersey, and I sold it one day. I had one of the most beautiful ranches in Texas, and I sold it. When people came to these places, they thought, my goodness, these are just phenomenal places. They were. Why don't I have them? Because I have a wonderful place down in Florida now. And how can I be there and enjoying it? The animals, the, uh, the, all the landscaping I did, and quality of mind and peace in my time if I'm thinking, oh, I got, there's something happening up at the rain, oh, and suddenly I'm diverted. How many places can you put your attention? How many places can you be? So you have to learn that everything in life is a gift and everything has an expiration date. And understand that life is just a series of passages. And the gift of that passage is knowing when the passage is over. And you have to surrender that passage. And you surrender the energy that went with it. And you keep the energy as a vibration, expression, as a memory that you can recall and think, oh, that's a wonderful thing that I was able to experience at that time. That was then. No two moments can ever be created again the same. Every single thing you've ever done in your life, you can only do once that way. There's an old adage, you can never step in the stream in the same place twice because the water's always moving. And as the water moves, we are imperceptibly altering our presence. So the lesson, how to succeed by being present for the moment that you're in, a mindful moment. So therefore, if I'm going to have a conversation with you, it's the conversation that I care about. If I'm going to have a meal, I'm going to enjoy the meal. If I'm going to go to the opera, I want to be at the opera. Do you know how many people go to sleep at an opera? You know, they're sitting there suddenly, you look around and all these heads are bobbing. We have one life chi. And if you're wise, you're successful when you honor the chi. However you ration your energy, you better make sure that you don't burn out your chi because once your chi's gone, your body will seem fine, but you just won't have any vitality and you won't be able to feel connected with what you do. There'll be a disconnect because your chi is not harmonizing anymore. And how do you rejuvenate your chi? One can listen to a piece of music and experience an emotional shift or restore oneself when you've been in the midst of the most horrendous experience. You can choose a type of music to play or something visual to look at and restore yourself. Where does that come from? What is that about? That's what artists and poets and musicians and um, great thinkers and philosophers uh, have been trying to, to tune into for, for thousands of years. And I think the mystery about that is wonderful. We can experience more joy in our lives starting with the self, either in isolation or with another, where we tune into the smallest pleasures. There's actually a feeling of pleasure in our most content, peaceful self. Is it joyous happiness leaping? No, it's that quiet pleasure. If I'm dancing and I'm returning to the playful child within, I could smile big time and enjoy a prolonged interaction with my dancing self and partners. Others might really enjoy picking up a guitar and just feeling that sense all is well in the world.
but it can start simply by sitting in a chair or standing and walking and turning into yourself a little, enjoying your body experiences and building out from there. When you're in nature and you're quiet, you're alone, nature revitalizes us. That's why we feel so good going to the beach or the mountains or for walks or being around animals. We love nature. For me, it was being around animals. I would just walk the pasture with my herd of buffalo and cows and all, this, all these animals I had at my ranch in Texas. And that, that just was totally calming, soothing, but it also it allowed energy to come back in because what we do every day, we expend energy. And we expend an inordinate amount of energy. And there's, there are people who are prana suckers. Prana is the life force. They literally suck the energy out of us. And no matter what personality traits they have, no matter how they come on to you, be careful because they're going to take your energy out like someone draining a battery. And by the time you wake up one day and realize, my goodness, now I figured it out. This person's just drained my energy. Yeah, and a lot of relationships do that. And that's why people frequently can't do anything else when they're in a bad relationship because they have no energy. Their vital life force is gone. One of the questions that I've had to consider in my own life over and over is how to keep others from draining my energy. Because I tend to be an open-hearted uh, kind of person and people can move in and take from me and I end up feeling like a wrung out sponge. So I've had to learn various techniques. One is to feel very centered. Um, one way I can feel centered is through meditation so that I'm centered there and not centered on the person who is uh, needy and grabbing at my energy. I choose to be loving no matter what the circumstance is. Wonderful healings happen most of the time and the situation works itself out. However, there are times, of course, when I will say no. Somebody will say, well, could we, could, you want to have lunch? You want to do this? And I'll say, no, thank you. I, can, I will say no to a toxic negative situation for me, but it doesn't mean I have to be filled with anger toward that person or I have to hate them or I have to feel obsessed with them. I can still send them love and say no. To be successful, you have to give priorities to what is important and take away anything it's not. So the ability to say goodbye to things that were beautiful, no mortgages, wonderful, and people say that's stupid. It's not stupid when you realize that the art of being successful is not in what you accumulate, but what you're able to use in the moment you're in. I can't sleep in three beds. I can't look at four views simultaneously. I looked at the Lake Hapakong. I would wake up in the morning when the mist was still there and no one was on, alive on that lake and I would go down in a canoe and I would paddle on the largest lake in New Jersey alone for two hours without seeing a single person or hearing even a sound. It was magical. But you have to know when the expiration date to something is, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it is a a series of excuses, whether it is the art of procrastinating, you built yourself a very complex set of excuses why you should not engage in something in this moment to clean it up, to reorganize your life, to unclutter your life. How long did it take us to unclutter our closets, our jobs, our lives of people that no longer were meaningful or things we were no longer using? We collect things 
and then what we collect we have to pay attention to and that drains us. It's a diversion. So part of the art of life, part of the success of life is to unclutter and only have what is relevant for the moment that you're in. And what about having better sex? As a country, we're obsessed with sex. Most people in the United States don't have happy sex, positive sex, creative sex, joyful sex, passionate sex. They frequently have anxiety-based sex, or they have guilt-based sex, or they have obligatory sex, and that's not good sex because we're almost always having sex with someone else's expectation of what that sex should mean to us, what we can do and can't do. As a result, we're not having sex. Our belief system is allowing us to have sex through them. So they're judging us, how we should feel, what we should do, how far we should go, what we shouldn't do. And that's just foolish. You're not going to be successful. And then all of your chakra is going to be affected, and your energy is going to be affected, and your vital chi is going to be affected. And you're going to take that energy into everything else you do because here's how it works. When you're not successful in one part of your life, it affects every other part of your life. A healthy, open sex life. Think about the words even. Healthy, open, sex, life. How do they all fit together? I, it's, it's, a, it's an image that is so expansive and joyful to me and something that so many of us aspire to and, and struggle with. So where do we start? I have many women that talk to me about a disconnect with their bodies and feeling great shame over either how they look or how their bodies react, how their bodies don't react, uh, what they feel they're supposed to be doing sexually, what they secretly long for sexually, and so often, what is secretly longed for is feared as something that's going, they're going to be shamed for it. So, to really start an open dialogue, I think, is the beginning. And to find others that you can take the risk with, to feel safe enough to talk about it with. So, how to have an open, healthy sex life? I think you've got to feel alive first. You've got to feel connected. You've got to find a way to, to examine and, and experience more than examine, experience the ebbs and flows of the feelings that go on in our bodies. And then, if we're lucky enough to have someone that wants to play, to be able to join them in a playful exploration. If there's a sexual encounter that can involve shifting and changing and being able to say, hey, let me try this with you right now, or I'm feeling I'd really like to slow this down, could we, um, would you be okay if we shift gear right now? I'd really like to try this. Or would it be okay if I talk to you about something I would really like? And see if through communication there's someone else that can kind of be in a dance with you so that it doesn't have to get fixed and you don't have to feel secret. Now, I also believe that we should be uh, looking for supportive, fun friends and not just friends to lay burdens upon, or friends that are there to share our concerns and our problems and our fears. I was running around the reservoir recently in Central Park, and right in front of me were a group of four women, and right behind me were two men. All they could talk about was gossiping about everything else that was wrong in their life. And I'm thinking, my God, you're around a beautiful reservoir, you're in the park, and there is that idea of being mindful to the moment you're in. So I ran faster to get away from because I didn't want that energy. It was draining. 
it was like being between you know, two toxic elements, two guys gossiping and angry about what was not going on at work, and a bunch of women where everything was wrong in their life, you know, and uh, therefore get the right guy. No, the right guy is not going to make you feel good about yourself, or the right woman is not going to make you feel good about yourself, and that's just a game we play. You have to be the right person, and then you will draw into your life, attract into your life, the people will harmonize with you and in an effortless, fluid way, you will find that you have things you can share together, do together, without hassle, without drama, without incrimination, and without guilt, and without abuse. And yet, rarely is that the case today. Cultivating healthy friendships, I believe, starts with cultivating a healthy relationship with yourself. Because there's no way that I can be a true friend and a true companion and a true lover to you if I can't be those things to myself. Do we only love someone when we get what we want? That's not love. That's Even in a relationship, well, I'll love you if you give me what I want. That's not love. And so how can I best be a friend to somebody? And I think of that as being I'm a good listener. I'm hearing the other person's feelings. I'm hearing their wants or desires. I share their joys and their sorrows, and I'm there to comfort, and I'm there to bring happiness. And also, the more I can just be happy, I'm also being a good friend, because whatever we're feeling inside is what we spread around. When I first came to the city, everyone I knew, all my friends, had televisions. I didn't. I couldn't afford it. I was happy that they had their television, and on rare occasion when something special was on, I asked, could I come over and watch it? But while they were watching television, I was reading, and I was a voracious reader. I would frequently read one or two books per day. I loved the time I spent with my daughter, Shelley, and when she had her friends over, I'd take them all to the park, and, and the other parents wouldn't do that. And I'm now happy all the quality time I gave her where I didn't choose things to be distracted. I realized that where everyone else is making money, I made quality of life, not a standard of living, is my priority. And a quality life means that you're a happy person and you're sharing that joint happiness and that sense of love and intimacy with other people. And other people, the more money they made, the more frustrated and angst-ridden they became. I remember one guy in particular was a friend of mine who was a writer. And he lived in a, I lived in a tiny little one-room place. In fact, my apartment was so small on West 89th Street, the bathtub, and it wasn't really a bathtub, it was like a tub, and you had to get in it, and I'm, you know, 6'2", so I couldn't sit down in it. I would kind of get in a, on my knees and then lather and shower off with this, you know, thing, and it was right beside the kitchen, in the kitchen. It was that small, and everybody thought that that was, you know, the stupidest place to live. I was happy because I didn't make my apartment contingent upon my happiness. I didn't make anything else contingent upon a happy. I'll be happy when I had the right apartment and the right amount of money in the bank. And yet I went to a friend's house who had a big apartment, and a six-room apartment on West End Avenue, and he was never happy. But he was sure he would be happy when he made more money. He just kept piling on possessions until finally his marriage cracked, he cracked, and ended up being a bus driver. What people want is, is not more things, but they want heart-to-heart -heart connection. 
there is a universal yearning, I believe, for connection and meaning. In my view, our quality of life, this craving for materialism, it's, 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 it's not only an addiction, but it comes out of not knowing really who we are and what we're here for. And this grabbing for pleasure and a grabbing for security and status. A lot of people, they don't have their money. They think, oh, who am I? I don't have any money. I'm not worth anything. We think that's what our value is, is our money or our accumulations. And that's very pathetic. And we see now, you know, as, as a therapist, I'm seeing so many people really freaking out now because their identity is so tied up to that. It's a false identity. Most of us are concerned about making changes in our lives that will cause improvements in our life in some way. We want better health, or we want a better relationship, or we want more gratification in our work, or better income, or something of that nature. And I think most of us look to external aspects of that sometimes when we think about making the changes. Well, yes, sometimes external changes are important, but I think the first place to begin is always inside. Because if we don't change the inside first and try to change the outside, we're maybe fighting against ourselves. Because often changes that we say we want to make uh, uh, don't occur because we're dragging anchors. It's like we're trying to sail a boat, wanting to go in a certain direction, but not being aware that we might have three or four anchors at the back of the boat holding us back. And if we don't deal with those anchors, we can't make those changes. So we might say, well, what are those anchors? And the most common ones we have might be, I'd say, threefold. First one would be early traumas or painful experiences we had in our lives. Those experiences are recorded in our survival brain called the limbic system. It's like encodings of information there, much like in a computer. And so those encodings of information there where I was not listened to, I was not valued, I was not talked to, I was not respected, I might have been abandoned, I might have been mistreated, I might have been abused emotionally or physically or sexually, any of those kind of things, that information stays there in the limbic system. And you might say it serves as a tremendous opposition to our more positive desires. It's quite well known that when we have a lot of traumas in our early life, it sets us up for adult illnesses, often early adult life. Or when we have adult traumas, those that are uncleared set us up for illnesses as well. Uh, those same kind of traumas tend to attract to themselves like a magnetic force field. And in relationships, we'll attract responses. The very thing we hated where we were abused as a child is the very thing we'll attract as long as those traumas are in place. So every choice you make can either empower the people that you feel overwhelmed by and, and abused by, or it empowers you. You don't have to live in New York City. You don't have to live in Los Angeles. You don't have to live in places that have become 25% Paris and 75% Calcutta. You know, you don't have to always be positioning and jockeying, I gotta get a better apartment, I gotta, get, I gotta be able to move on that avenue or that street or that borough, no then you're saying that the circumstances of your life and the conditioning response is what's going to determine, ah, it's in the hands. The hands of whom? You. Because you also have free will. Circumstances and conditioning together represent only, only about 20% of what's going to happen to you in life. That means 80% of what's going to happen you have control over. So when you start with focusing upon the 80% that you can control, then you are successful. Because you give me 80-20 any day of the week and you win. You win because 
you focused upon the strength of what you can control instead of the weakness of what you can't. And the average person focuses upon what they can't control and makes it almost everything. And so they, they lose. When an individual starts to go negative, even though everything around them seems fine, but they're vigilant looking out for that shoe that's going to drop, how do, they, how do they catch themselves? How do they stop that onslaught of negativity from rolling over them? And we all get rolled over. All of a sudden, something can trigger us, and we can go negative and spoil our relationship, a day, a project. We don't want to. Nobody wants to. And from the Zen point of view, it's called karma, that karma is coming upon you. When karma comes up, it has nothing to do with the outside world. You get to, it's your own inner karma. And whether it's through yoga or through Zen or through some kind of mind training where you become very aware, because we all have that negativity within, you become aware of being able to see it, not hate it, just notice it, and then quickly return your focus, let it go, because you know it's just karma arising, illusions arising. Um, from a Jewish or a Judeo-Christian point of view, which I do both, a wonderful way, they would say that all of that comes upon a person because they're not sufficiently connected to God or attached to the higher self or the divine spirit or to God. And so we feel we, we have to take care of ourselves. We're looking around. We, we don't feel there's anyone looking after us. And of course, people who are really connected to prayer and to their higher self or to God, they don't feel as vulnerable. They feel as if they're, they're being looked after which they are anyway, which we all are, but we don't feel it. People often wonder what they can do to help themselves rather than having to go see a professional for the help. And I think that's very, very valuable because too often in my profession, we've, people have had to count too much on getting to our offices before they can get any relief. It doesn't mean that uh, professionals aren't valuable to do in-depth work, and that's very important, and to have the knowledge and perspective to do more thorough work. But there's so much that a person can do on his own or, or her own to bring themselves back to peace and don't have to wait until the next time they go see the therapist. One tool I find very effective is just one just begin to observe my thoughts. If I'm thinking thoughts that are producing a negative feeling in my body, that's a thought that I need to let go. I need to just say, there's one of those disturbing ego thoughts. If I focus on it, that's what's going to increase. Do I want this thought I'm focusing on to increase? No way, I want that to increase. I really want that one to go. So therefore, I choose to release it. I choose to see it as just a disturbing ego thought. I don't lock in a battle with it. That's a way of empowering it. I just see through it. I see the inaccuracy of it. Or you might say the lie of the ego mind. I see through it and then make a choice to think otherwise. But then it's going to be important, too, to bring in uh, something to replace that. Uh, there's an old Aristotelian principle that says nature abhors a vacuum. That means where there's empty space, something's going to rush into it. If there's a hole in the ground, water will rush into that. If there's a low air pressure system, uh, air will rush in, which makes wind. Now, if we clear out the negative thought in our mind, something's going to rush back into that empty space. Uh, what's likely to, if we're not alert, is the same negative thought that we've been thinking. The ego mind is going to try to rush back into that space. 
So if we can find some way to fill that instead, one way is to do that is to uh, have some kind of an affirmation, an affirmative statement. It might be one that's psychological, it might be a spiritual one, but one that you have without even having to think about it. You can just pluck it out of the pigeonhole and you can use it and say it to yourself three times or 20 times if you need to, to fill that space so that that negative thought doesn't come back in. We're afraid to live within our means. We're insecure. We're afraid to show people that we're happy with what we have. Instead, we show our anger at what we don't have and why we have to have it now, instant gratification. Being normal no longer is an acceptable state of mind. We must be excessive because we're surrounded by people who are excessive. Almost all the models that we look at from the Donald Trumps on are excessive and grossly imbalanced. And we're never in their shoes, so we don't know what they're really feeling. But all we know is we no longer feel comfortable in our own shoes. So we're looking for a bigger and better pair all the time. And that means we're diverting that essential energy. And when you divert your energy, you no longer have focus. So reclaim your focus on what's important by creating a successful life that is based upon sustainability. So no matter what happens, you'll be able to come out all right. Stop looking over at your shoulders at everything that was yesterday's and never make today less significant because of something you considered more significant from yesterday. Make today the beginning of a new idea. And I never have to look at anything I've done. I don't read my books, I don't go back and watch my videos or broadcast because that's yesterday. That was real yesterday. Today, I have a whole new canvas now imagine if you started each day with the attitude you're going to create a whole new dynamic today. Think of the excitement you bring to that. Think of the energy. Think of the vibration because when you're excited by something, you shift the vibration. When your heart chakra is going out, when your brain chakra is going out, you're, you're vibrating. You're vibrating in a way that you're, you're expanding because the greater the vibration, the greater expanse. It's waves of energy going out and it attracts other people into this energy and suddenly you got other people who are now, you didn't even know existed, now they feel an energy and now you're sharing that synchronicity and good minds coming together with the right energy can cause wonderful things to happen. So the idea was always keep growing. And if you keep growing, then everything becomes exciting. The birth of any new idea means the death of the old ideas that limited them. So believe in ideas that you create now and let go of the old ideas. This is how we keep growing, keep improving. A way for people to become winners, for us all to become winners in our lives, personal, professional, internal, is to first identify those things that are in the way of the fulfillment of that meaningful goal. First is to look at the dark side, to see what's in the way and let go of it. Just let go of it. Children let go of anger that they had toward their friend who took their baseball and the next second they've made up and they're throwing the ball and they're back in the game. Just like that. No effort. Anger expressed. Gone. What happened? How did we lose that ability? We need 
as mature adults to let go of the anger, of the hostilities, of the upsets that we have caused each other and become present and be thankful that we're alive. Say the apologies that need to be said. Apologize to oneself, reconcile with oneself, forgive oneself and others, i.e. come to a place of inner peace. Life will arise. There'll be times that we like, times that we dislike. The trick is to be with all of it, to welcome it all, to sit and experience it and then let it go. We actually don't have control over what happens to us, but we do have control of, on how we respond to it. We can hate it, we can fight it, we can resist it, or we can accept it. And by accept it, I mean say, hello, I am going to welcome this situation into my life. I won't resist it. I'll experience it. I'll even bless it. Believe it or not, in the Torah it says when dark things happen, if somebody's your enemy or hurts you, bless that person. Pray for that person. Send that person love. By doing that, you will grow hugely. You will grow, and the whole situation will fade away. Because for you, there won't be an enemy. There'll be somebody you're blessing and sending love to. In order to win at life, you have to live a non-stressed life. And the stress in your life is one that you continue reintroduce. You have a right to say no to anything that is stressful. And you also have a right to deal with stress in a constructive rather than a negative, toxic way. I believe that we have become a nation of people who are living through our dysfunctional self, but manifesting a together facade so that we can do business and be acceptable. But if someone opened the door to our true self and looked inside, they would be terrified by what they would see. My God, you're living through this excess and this manipulation because inside you're really an insecure person due to blah, blah, blah from your background. And, and I believe that we are not just dysfunctional in one part of our life, but functional in another part. When you're dysfunctional in one part of your life, you're dysfunctional. You may be functional in some other area, but the basic core that you become is dysfunctional. So when you're filled with fear, you may not manifest fear in all circumstances, but you are still living a fearful existence. When you take a look at all the different ways that we're living and all the problems we have and how we manifest them, we've made unhappy normal. We've made processing disease normal. We've made kids who are diabetic and suffering from heart disease normal. That's how dysfunctional we have become. And we look for magic panaceas. We look for something that we don't have to work on and we don't have to change anything. It'll change us. But it doesn't. So we have to deal with stress, the real causes, and start to be honest about what causes our stress, our perceptions, and our reality. Change that and you change what's stressful.